Hello and welcome back to Maker Chat Live. I'm your host, Adam Krutinger, and today we're going to be talking about self-publishing with author Jay Maletsky. Don't miss out. And how are you doing, Jay? I'm good, Adam. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to talk to you because not only are you an author, but also you're a speaker, a storyteller, and you have your own uh a children's book press called New Page Press. And I want to get into a lot of those things, but before we get too deep into it, I just wanted to kind of ask is uh, how you got started in writing and being an author. Uh, well, actually, you know, I think people people who are watching this probably know me from my children's books, but uh, I actually started writing right out of college. I graduated from Brandeis University in 1994. And back then, uh, I started a, a marketing agency out of my, my bedroom. And uh, you know, when I, when I started learning how to do marketing and how to do, you know, print work and things like that, uh, you know, I, I learned pretty quickly that, uh, you know, the industry was changing and it was going from drafting tables to to, to using computers. And a, a new um, software was out called Photoshop and no one had really heard of it. Um, and it was not an easy thing to to, to use at the time. So I, I, I taught myself how to use Photoshop. And as it happened, I turned out to be one of the few people in New York, New Jersey, who ended up passing the Adobe Certified Photoshop tests. Um, and I ended up, long story short, I ended up getting a phone call from Pearson Education, which is a, a large traditional publisher, asking me if I was interested in writing a book on how to use Photoshop. So I, I actually was one of the earlier authors to write a how-to book on, on that program. Oh, really? Um, so back that, in 95 or so. So that wasn't a book for kids, though. That was a book for training adults how to use this program. Yeah, and, and it was a, it was a, it was a general consumer book. You find it in most Barnes and Nobles and back then Borders and wherever else. And that turned into one or two more books on on graphic design and Photoshop and things like that. And eventually, when um, my acquisitions editor moved from Pearson to Cengage, uh, Cengage Learning, they asked me if I would be interested in writing another one. And I said, not really, but I could write some books on advertising and marketing. So I wrote um, overall. I wrote twelve books. Um, two of them were college textbooks. The rest of them were on marketing, advertising, entrepreneurship. And eventually, I, you know, I ended up just, um, they were very, very boring to write. I assume they're probably more boring to read. Um, I didn't really enjoy much of that at all. And at some point, I kind of ran out of material. Uh, and I just didn't want to write those books anymore. Every book was three, 400 pages. You had to write them very quickly. Otherwise, they'd be outdated very, very soon. So I stopped writing for a while. And then after I had my daughter eight years ago, um, I would read to her almost every night. And the more I read to her, the more I would, I was kind of getting back into the idea of writing and stories and thinking of different things, and I started jotting down some ideas. And then a few years ago, I finally decided, let me give this a shot. And that's basically where, where we are now. That's that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. That's really amazing, too, especially because I'm, I'm familiar with your books. Actually, I have a couple here, and right. I just I just reread them, too, as, as prep. And, man, they really are really well put together in so many ways. Now, Ricky the Rock, uh, The Rock That Couldn't Roll, it seems like kind of one of your main books. Was this the one of the first ones? That was my that was my first children's book, wow. and you know that one was um, you know my my I'm not sure if, if you're aware, but um, my daughter is eight years old now. Her, her name is Bria. And you probably noticed the uh, the ladybug character is named after my daughter, okay. um, but actually you know the the story itself is really about my daughter in a lot of ways. Uh, you know Ricky is a a rock that he's surrounded by other other rocks that that are all around, and so they can roll around the hill and have fun that way. And Ricky unfortunately is flat on one side, so he can't roll around with the others, and you know, it's it's a it's basically it's a it's a book that's supposed to promote you know friendship and perseverance and also just be a fun fun plot plot driven story with quirky characters and and all things like that and I think you know kids really enjoy that aspect of it but really the book is is a metaphor it's supposed to be almost a letter to parents of kids like myself my daughter has cerebral palsy so even though she's eight she can't walk yet and you know just like Ricky can't can't roll because he's flat on one side my daughter because she she has CP. She can't walk or, or run and do things that other people do. And the way R Ricky has all of his rock friends who try to help him to learn how to roll, my daughter has friends and family, teachers, aides, therapists, nurses, doctors, whatever else, all trying or working 24 hours a day to figure out ways for her to be more mobile. And, you know, knowing other parents like myself who, you know, feel like they've given up in a lot of ways or they, they feel like, you know, kind of desperate and at the end of the rope, I've always taken a much more positive approach to my daughter's progression and development and i've always kind of thought look we're just not going to give up and we're going to make progress so i wanted this book to be more of a a letter to those parents but at the same time you know I, i've had enough experience in business to know that you know if i put a child in a wheelchair on the cover uh the fact is no one's going to buy that book uh the parents of developmentally typical kids won't buy that book because 
they find that that's scary. Whether it's right or wrong, they, they do. They find it scary. Parents of kids like my daughter probably won't buy that book because they live that every day. They don't want more material around with wheelchairs. So in order to make it, have, you know, give it some mass appeal, um, I kind of buried that whole messaging uh, underneath everything else and made it much more subtle. Most people never realize that it's a book, of, you know, for about a kid with with a disability. Yeah, that's amazing. And again, I I would not have known that upon reading it the first time. I did know that because I'm more familiar with your work, so I knew some of the backstory from that. But that's such an important thing because anytime because my background is mainly now is a puppeteer, but I also am working on some manuscripts for children's books as well. But uh, one thing I know to me is my overall philosophy is you have to grab people's attention, and the best way to get their attention is through entertainment. So unfortunately, it, it almost sounds opposite. Your message is kind of secondary to the entertainment uh, so that you can get their attention. Because if kids don't enjoy reading it, the message almost doesn't matter then. Well, exactly. You know, I, I kind of call it the, um, you know, it, it's a it's a hiding the peas in the mashed potatoes sort of a, a method of, of writing. You know, you, you want your kids to eat something that's healthy for them, but they don't want to eat it, so you hide it in something that tastes better. It's the same thing here. You know, if kids aren't going to read, you know, kids aren't going to read a book that's called Barry the Bully Who Learns to Be Kind. That's not a fun book. They're not going to keep pulling that off the shelf. So there's no point in sending a message if it's going to be that direct. The book has to be fun first. You know, I've had some people, you know, by and large, the the re reviews that I've gotten and feedback that I've gotten in this book have been insanely high, been insanely positive. Um, I mean, it, it's got a very, very high rating on, on Amazon, um, has very few negative ratings. But the, the one or two negative ratings that I've gotten, you know, have been that, um, you know, one person said that, you know, the rocks really shouldn't be trying to get Ricky to roll. They should all be, maybe they should sit with him and just have a moss growing contest. You know, and, and my thinking to that is, okay, but, you know, in the end, A, that, that's not really what, what reality is. The world doesn't stop for my daughter, uh, nor would I expect it to. But B, this is still a story. Who wants to read a, who wants to read a story about a moss growing contest? It's not fun. The story, the story has to still be fun yeah. to read. Yeah. You well, know. another thing I would say, too, because uh, a lot of times with things that I write, whether it's a puppet script or a story that I'm writing, people give those kinds of ideas. I said, that's a good idea, but that's another story. Right. Or maybe right. it'd be like another book or the next book or something in a series. And uh, and actually speaking of it being a series, I know you have many different. Uh, this is a series. You have your uh, test, the tin that wanted to rock. You have uh, the grumpy rocks here. And uh, and I think a couple others as well. What So you kind of made a whole little uh, little what, 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 a series out of this. Well, you know, I'm not a huge fan of going into something and thinking this is going to be a collection right off the bat. You know, I think everybody, a lot of people do that. A lot of people will, before they even write the first word, they say, I've got an idea for a book series or a book collection. And, I, you know, for me, to me, those people are, are people who have read Harry Potter and they think they're going to be the next J.K. Rowling. And perhaps they will. But I don't think that's the right way to go into it. I think the right way to go into it is to write a book and to see some success with that. And once you see some success with that, then you go on to say, OK, hey, you know what? People seem to like these characters. They like this way of storytelling. What else can I build from this? Um, but I think I think if you bite off too much, you know, more than you can chew, uh, and you kind of put the cart before the horse, you're not going to get very far. So you know, Ricky ended up being insanely popular. We've sold 70,000 units at this point, and it's still going very strong. And at some point, you realize, you know, I'm getting so many people who like this book, and so many teachers who have adopted it. What else can I do with these same characters? Uh, and so we, I introduced Tess, uh, a tinfoil ball who rolls her way onto the um, to the hill, and you know, she feels that because she's a tinfoil ball, she's not as, as strong or as, as solid or, or, you know, as fast at rolling as the other, as a rock. She doesn't really fit in. And so she also wants to be a rock, but she can't be. And then at, at the end of the day, it turns out that she saves the day because she, she can do things that they can't, such as shine in the moonlight, which ends up helping to save the day for them. So it's, it's about, you know, self, um, you know, believing in yourself and having, you know, having self-confidence. Um, you know, and then the actually the other one, the Three Grumpy Rocks. The name of that has changed to uh, Do Pebbles Eat Chili, and that's actually a book of poetry, all based on the uh, the rock characters. Which, to be honest with you, that's coming out later this year, and I didn't really have a lot of hope for that one because books of poetry don't tend to sell very well. But uh, I'm getting some some really good feedback from that so far, and a lot of pre-orders for that one. So uh, I'm excited. That's that's really interesting. Wow, that's, that's so cool that you're doing pre-orders too, which is something I want to get into in, in a couple minutes too. Uh, about the more of uh, the sales end of it.
and whatnot. But before we do that, I do want to talk briefly about your uh, your book, The Masterpiece, which I know is also kind of becoming a series as well. And actually, is that the name of the series here? One Big uh, Canvas Book? One Big Canvas. Yeah. Oh, One Big Canvas. Oh, of course. Of course. That's great. And again, this is especially close to my heart because uh, not only as uh, you know, someone who loves characters, uh, someone who likes writing, but also as an art teacher. During the day, I'm an elementary school art teacher. So this resonates with me in, in many different ways. And especially with your message in this, which does the same thing as your other book, which doesn't, again, it doesn't uh, uh, beat you over the head with uh, with the message, which can sometimes take away from the story and people's desire to to read and share the story. When I, you know, I actually didn't write that book on my, I, mean, I wrote that book myself, but I, I didn't really have the idea for it. Uh, it's a book about, basically about, um, the idea was to help, help elementary school teachers between kindergarten and third grade teach their developmentally typical kids about autism, you know, and what autism is like, how to, how to recognize um, some of the traits and how to deal with it when you do, when you do see it. Because a lot of these kids have classmates who may be autistic, uh, and a lot of these kids don't really know what to do with that. Uh, so there's a, a school called the Reed Academy. It's in Oakland, New Jersey. And um, they ended up reading Ricky the Rock. And they they called me and they said, listen, you know, would you be interested in, you know, and, and the whole thing is, is very, you know, it's a very small world. They, I don't even think they realized that I actually grew up in Oakland, New Jersey. Um, so it just ended up being a small world. Uh, they asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book to help them teach developmentally typical kids what autism is. And I said, look, I, I would, I'd be interested in doing that. But I just want to let you know in advance, I'm not going to write a book that uses the word autism. It's not going to use the word spectrum. It's not going to do anything like that at all. Um, it will be about autism without ever saying it, uh, which means that people can read it and they might not even know that's what the book is about. And that has to be okay. And they were, they were great. They were great to work with. They allowed me to, um, to pick their brains. They taught me a lot about autism. I got to meet a lot of the kids. I, I've walked around that school any number of times now. I've gotten to interact with the kids. And, you know, when I, when I started off writing that book, I really thought the book was going to be about, be about inclusion. And that was kind of where my, my head was. And I, I spoke to, I guess, five or six different uh, parents of kids with, with autism who were, you know, who were kind of on the side of the spectrum that was a little more um, advanced where they, you know, they, they were able to, you know, kind of do a little more, you know, play, play a role in their, um, you know, in a, in a more, you know, a, a typical high school. Um, and the parents really weren't looking for inclusion. What I found from them was that, you know, they said, look, I said, inclusion is, is, is fine as a concept. They said, but the truth is, is that if the kids in my, in my son's school go, are going to a baseball, a basketball game and they call my son to go with them, that would be weird to me. I don't think that that would actually happen. If they're, if they're all going to a party, I don't expect them to call my son to go with them. I'm not really looking for that. And if they did, I'd be suspicious that something else is up. Uh, what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm looking for is acceptance, understanding and kindness not so much inclusion. So that's kind of, that really, and they all seem to say the same thing. Um, and it was a very kind of realistic, eye-opening way of looking at it. So the, the book ended up not being so much about inclusion as much as it was about recognizing some of the traits and behaviors that you might see in kids who have, who have autism, um, how to react to them and how to, how to kind of deal with them in a way that yes, includes them without excluding them. And, and also kind of makes you feel, makes everyone feel okay with the situation. In the end, you know, the idea is that it takes a community to create a masterpiece. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah, that's really great. And again, but you've made other, uh, written other books to go along with it, too. I have a cover here, The Molding of Clay. That's the one, yep. So that one actually is, uh, the, yep, I'm just going to hold it up. This one is coming out, uh, I think, in October. Oh, okay. It's not out yet. That's right. So, so we're, we're excited about this one. Wow. Do you think you'll have plans to expand that uh, series even more than that? Potentially? Uh, yeah. So actually, the um, the molding of clay is a second book. We are definitely going to be doing a third book. But you know, because the masterpiece seems to have taken on a little bit of a life of its own, um, e even though that's my fifth title overall, that's my first title that's actually been adopted by uh, by Target. So most of the uh, the Target brick and mortar stores probably by now have um, oh, there you go. <laughs> um, probably by now have a copy, you know, copies of the of the masterpiece on their shelves. Uh, because that's really been kind of driving a lot of the sales, not so much Amazon. Um, we've started to get other brick and mortar stores very interested in holding on to that book. And what we started to say is, you know what, maybe after molding of clay, um, we've kind of exhausted what we've kind of done what we need to do in terms of making the stories really kind of focus in on, on autism. We don't want to keep repeating the same story over and over again. Uh, so we're probably going to expand that series, but not touch on the autistic side of it. We're just going to have the characters be fun, happy characters and teach different lessons and different morals about 
you know, friendship and inclusion and working together and you know, teamwork, whatever else. Um, but maybe move away from the the autism part. The same way that you know, my 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 rock books moved away from you know the CP aspect and especially these aspects, they moved on to other things. Yeah. So you know, there's no reason to beat the, beat you know beat anyone over the head with the same message over and over again. Oh, of course. Characters clearly can have a life of their own. Yeah, you want to expand not just the story, but also the message as well, which is which correct. Is great, because then yeah. they all support each other. But another thing I want to get into is your actual writing process. Is there, uh, how do you start to generate ideas? It sounds like so far you kind of uh, are filling a need that you saw from reading stories to your daughter. But for as far as actually when you, when you sit down at your table or actually wherever you sit to get down and start writing, what's your process like? Well, you know, I'll give you the actual correct answer. Um, this is a, you know, and I'm, I'm ho I'll be hopeful that a lot of kids aren't watching this because when I go to schools, I always get that question, and I, I, I kind of fib a little bit. I tell the kids that I, um, you know, when I when I write, I sit in a very quiet room and I make sure all the the TVs are off and the music is off because that's obviously the way teachers and parents would prefer the kids were doing their homework. So I tell them that's the way I do my writing. Um, the way I actually do my writing is not a way that I recommend to anybody. Um, I like to write while I'm driving. Uh, I have my I have my phone on my on my dashboard, and I will push the microphone button in a notes program, and I will just start to spew out different lyrics as they come to me. Uh, once I get an idea in my head for for what I want a story to be about, um, I start to piece it together. And I don't necessarily write it in a linear way. Sometimes I'll write a middle piece, then I'll write the ending, then I'll go back to the beginning. Um, meanwhile, I'm probably endangering everyone within you know an eighty mile, an eighty meter radius. Of me because I'm I'm all over the place while I'm driving, but so it's not a, a great way of writing, but it tends to be the way that I, I do most of my work. Yeah, there's uh, there's something that I really love about that because I I have a similar process as well. Whereas I like to, it's hard to sometimes sit down and just start writing because you feel a lot of pressure, a pressure that what you write is going to be good. And even after you write down a sentence, you you kind of you start revising as you're still writing, right? So is there something about just being able to sit back and tell a story? And even myself, I find uh, I can come up with a, a decent story just through improv. So maybe I'll tell a story to my nephew or something like that. And I'll record myself doing it. And then I take that type it out and then it's just time to start editing. And you can really, by, by just kind of improving it through live with somebody or even, you know, to your phone, like you're saying, you can kind of explore places that you wouldn't normally have explored. And again, you don't have this desire to immediately start editing something that you just uh, wrote a couple minutes ago. So that's, that's amazing. So, so from that point, then you take your voice memos, and then I imagine uh, you do a type to text uh, or talk to text thing, and then you start editing it together. Correct. So, it, I'll, I'll, like I said, I don't really do it in a linear way. I'll, I'll use a speech to text sort of thing, and I'll just kind of go through some different lines and some rhymes. I mean, all my my books are lyrically written. Um, I will sometimes if I if I only know the end words of some lines, I'll just use those words and I'll kind of fit in some words before them to make the lines work. And then at some point when I get home, I'll take those, that notes program. I sync it up to my, my laptop. I put it into a, um, a word program and I'll start to kind of piece it all together and I'll fill in the missing parts. Then I, I typically will let my, my wife read it and she'll let me know which parts seem to be lacking a little bit, which parts and where I'm, I'm, I'm missing some information. Uh, and then I just fill in the gaps. Gotcha. Gotcha. Another thing I notice, um, which is I've noticed in these books, and I'm assuming maybe all of your books that you write in rhyme. Uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about why you chose to do that, and 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 uh, if you will continue to do that? You know, I um, the book. You know, when I would read to my my daughter, I'd say I'd say half the books were written in rhyme, and half the books were are written in prose. And I just tend to like the books that were written in rhyme better when they were written well. And I, I was always kind of surprised by how many books I would I would buy that were written in rhyme, and they really weren't done well. Uh, the meter was off, the rhyming was off, you know, and and. You know, I mean, I, I would be looking at these books like, you know, like the Pow Pow Fish, for example, which somehow is wildly popular, even though the meter is off in at least a dozen places. Uh, and, you know, there's there's words in there that clearly don't rhyme. Um, you know, and I started thinking, like, you know, this is if this is the, the bar, uh, I could definitely get beyond this. So I started to play around with some some rhymes. And I, I originally started to speak to some people and people would tell me, you know, don't write a book that rhymes. And when I asked why they, they you know, they said that. You know, nobody wants to publish that because most people can't write in rhyme. And, you know, when, when someone, you know, throws a challenge out like that, then, you know, my first instinct is I want to meet that challenge. So I started to just write. And I realized that I kind of had a little bit of a knack for finding the meter and finding the rhythm and rhyming the right way. Um, you know, I think a lot of people 
who write and rhyme try to force fit words that don't necessarily rhyme or they, they have words that rhyme and they force fit the rest of the words or the rest of the lyrics uh, just to meet those rhymes and they, they forget that the whole purpose of writing and rhyme is to create some fun in the book, to create some some character to it. You know, and the whole thing is like a Rubik's Cube. When you think about it, you know, these children's books are maybe 500 words, maybe 600 words. That's not a lot of words really to introduce characters, introduce a setting, um, establish what the plot is, make your character suffer a little bit so that people care about him, you know, create that emotional connection and create some sort of a positive resolution at the end in only 500 words. And now you take all that and you add on the even more complicated layer of making all this have to rhyme. Uh, and that's really difficult. And I love puzzles. So to me, working in, in, in rhyme is just like trying to solve a, a really large, intricate puzzle. And I, I, I enjoy that part of it. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's that's really cool because uh, yeah, I've played, I've dabbled in some uh, rhyming writing of books as well, and there's something about it I really do like. But I do also really like the freedom of of writing uh, not in rhyme. But I definitely hear what you're saying too about some of those books that you read and you wonder how did this get published? Right, exactly. there's, yeah, there's some especially like people rhyming a word with uh, then. But the next word's in plural, and it doesn't rhyme right. more. That is, I can't believe how common that is. And it's it, very common. Yeah, and again, it throws off the rhythm as well. Not even just the rhyme alone. So that's so. Do you plan to write any books at all in in just uh, without rhyme, or you think you're probably going to stick with this for now? You know, I think it's. Um, I think with uh, with ch children's picture books, I think I'm always going to write in rhyme. I, I doubt. I don't see myself really writing any books in prose. However, um, I have been starting to write some notes. One of the other books that I've got coming out later this year has been, um, I don't know if you can see it behind me, but Patrick Picklebottom and the Penny Book, um, which is this one. And it's, it's one of the ones I'm probably the most excited about. The, the artwork is beautiful. Uh, I love the, the story of it. I love the characters. I like the reason why I wrote it and the, the message behind the story. There you go. There's some of the characters. Those are great. Um, and, you know, I already, I already have two more books in production with those same characters. And I've started to think these could be characters that could stick with kids later on. So, you know, if, if kids are reading this, let's say kindergarten to third grade, there's no reason why they can't read those same characters fourth grade to sixth grade, even after they move beyond picture books. So I've started to write some notes for, uh, for some young adult books or some, some you know, some um, pre, you know, tween books, I guess. Um, you know, that would be a chapter book featuring the same characters. And it was obviously, it, was, it was wouldn't rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Now, I, I, one thing I really want to get into as well is uh, how you're self-publishing. And before we get into that, I was just uh, curious, did you try traditional publishing at first or because of your background in marketing, you decided to just go for it? Well, you know, I, um, I think I was a little spoiled because, you know, the, originally when I first wrote my, my books on marketing and, and branding and, and earlier on Photoshop, you know, I didn't have to go through the same kind of routine that most people have to go through, getting an, getting an agent and the agent getting a publisher. You know, the publisher came to me. So I was very, very spoiled um, about as to in terms of, of working with a publisher. And by the time I started thinking about writing the children's book, I thought it should be just that easy. I thought, you know, once I decide that I want to write a children's book, publishers should come knocking and nobody did. And, you know, even though I had a platform, you know, my, my Pucker Mob website, which had, you know, 10 million plus people visiting it every month. And I, I you know, would kind of tell people, look, I can, I can market my books on this site. No one really cared. Um, I, I wasn't getting any real bites. And I found out pretty quickly, I had to take the same routes that everyone else had to take, which was that I had to get a, an agent, um, which would take six months to a year if I got one at all. And then that agent would take however long to possibly get me a, uh, a contract. Uh, as it happened, my, um, my, my website back then, like I said, it was called puckermob.com. We had an aid, we had an office in Manhattan, um, and I had my office was on the seventh floor of the Prince Building, and right across the hall was um, was Scholastic, and uh, one of Scholastic's offices, and we were always told that the Scholastic offices that were across the hall from us were um, were the technology offices, but you know you, you ride the elevator for a couple of years with these people, and you realize there's a lot of older ladies who seem to be working in technology in this company. And you start realizing they're, they're not really doing technology there. They just don't want you to know that that's where the, that's where the uh, acquisitions editors are sitting. So one day I just took my manuscript and I walked across the hall and I knocked on the door and I found a, a college kid who was there as an intern. And I said, listen, I need to speak to an, uh, an acquisitions editor. And she looked at me with these kind of big deer eyes and she goes, well, there aren't any, I guess there are, just please find me one. And you know, she introduced me to one and, and I, I sat and we chatted for a bit. We, we recognized each other in the hallways and the elevators. Long story short, I ended up getting a, um, a contract with Scholastic 
um, that at the last minute I decided not to uh, pursue. And I, I did the math in my head and I realized I could do a lot better as awesome as a publisher as they are and they could get me you know, out there very, very quickly. Uh, mathematically, it made a lot more sense for me financially to do this on my own. Uh, I know the marketing. I know how the publishing industry works. I understand the, the books need to be printed in China and shipped back to the US. I could do some research to figure out how Amazon worked. Maybe I wouldn't get them into Barnes Noble and Target and all that right off the bat, but I could sell them on Amazon and that's the largest platform. So I, I realized I could do, would I rather be just the author or do I want to be the publisher as well? That's, that's what makes the money. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because uh, you know it's a big debate I know amongst writers, especially someone starting off, whether to self-publish or to, to pursue uh, traditional publishing. And there are definitely a lot of pros and cons to both. You know, uh, with traditional publishing, it's gonna it's gonna take a while. Even if you get an agent like that, you know, then they have they have to sell the book to a publisher. And even once your a publisher buys it, it can take still two years or more for it to be actually produced into a book. Whereas, I mean, how, how fast, if you have uh, the book written and illustrated, how fast are you able to, to get to shelves by something? I mean, everything you're saying is exactly correct. And you're, you're waiting all those years for a minimal amount of money. They're going to give you a, you know, four or $5,000 advance uh, against future royalties. And, you know, your future world is going to be, let's say, 5% of their wholesale price, which means you got you got to sell about 10,000 books before you pay back that advance. And most traditionally published books don't sell more than 3,000 units. So, you know, you're walking away with maybe four or $5,000 for all of that work and all of that waiting. Uh, you know, a, a traditional publisher will give almost 18 months to an illustrator to finish the book. And then plus, the, after that, they still have to then sell it, print it. So it's a years-long process. Uh, whereas, you know, for me, you know, I, 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 you know, my illustrators finish a book in three to six months. Uh, I get the files together relatively quickly. I send them out to the printer. I mean, I get a, I get a book done in, in you know, less than a year. Uh, and I can do multiple books that way. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, but you know, when, when someone asks me, you know, how do I publish a book? You know, someone, I'll see, I'll see people on Facebook in, in one of these groups and they'll, they'll put up a general post saying, I'd like to publish a children's book. What do I do? And I'll see, you know, 50 to 100 people all replying, leaving one ridiculous comment after another. And, no, no one has bothered to ask, what are your goals? You know, because depending on your goals, your goals are going to basically decide for you what direction you want to take. If you want, if you want to see your book on a shelf, let's, let's say you're just strictly going for ego. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, say, I don't say ego in a negative way. Let's say that you're, you just want to see your books on the shelves of a Barnes & Noble and Target. You want to fly across the country and see your books on the shelves there also. That's really cool. I get that. That's a lot of fun. Well, your best bet for that is traditional publishing, getting a traditional publisher. It might take you years, but that's your best bet for that goal. If your goal is to only have a few copies to give out to friends and family because you want to be able to say that you published a book and have that notch you know, on your, in your belt, then great. Then that's, that's also a good goal. Your best bet is, is print on demand. Print out a few copies of a book at a relatively cheap price. Don't worry about the money-making um, aspect of it, and you're good to go. If you want to make some money from your book, if you want to actually make substantial profits, and you want to turn it into a business, then the only real way to do that is by becoming a self-publisher and by printing your books in bulk in China, having them shipped back to the U.S. and creating your own sales channels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> that's really interesting. And you're absolutely right because that's the first thing that people have to tell themselves is why, what is their goal? And I think it's a lot of th things that people don't uh, – aren't uh, honest with themselves about and and also unfortunately like again i'm in some of these groups too and i think a lot of it is again not in a negative way but it is ego they they really do just want to say they want they want to walk in the mall and see it see it there in a window or something and uh and that's just so rare you know it's better it to have a, a, a more uh uh fiscally smart goal perhaps than than that wow yeah so, yeah, so I guess if you were gonna if you were gonna strongman uh, the idea of traditional publishing, what would you say are the benefits of traditional publishing? Well, I, mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of a lot of benefits. I mean, one of the benefits is that you're gonna have a faster you know you're gonna have a faster track to getting your books on on the shelves. Um, you know, if if that's what you want, and then if your books are on the shelves at a Barnes and Noble or a a Target or wherever else, and they start to sell, you know, once you have that first one in, your second one or third one should be relatively easy to get in as well which means maybe you fast track your way into, you know, that, that Netflix series that you have been daydreaming about um, your, your book becoming, you know, that's also going to be relatively rare. And you're talking about years down the road, but it's a lot faster of a way to get there than through doing it the, 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 the self-published way. You also don't have to take any money out of your pocket. Yes. You might have to wait a long time. You might have to, 
uh, you know, accept the fact that you're not going to make any real money through traditional publishing. I mean, a few authors do, but most of the time, it's not really the way that works. Um, <clears throat> but you know, you don't have to put money out for printing. You don't have to put money out for you know your illustrator. The, the traditional publisher does all of that, so it doesn't cost you anything. In fact, you get paid a little bit. Yeah, you know, one thing I think that scares people off from the uh, from the self publishing is, you know, I think a lot of writers see themselves more almost as an artist. You know, they just want to focus on the writing. They don't want to run a business. They don't want to make orders. They don't want to do sales. What would you say to those people? You know, if, if you know, you, you, if you don't, if you're not interested in, in creating a, you know, in, in building a, um, a substantial profit for yourself, then don't worry about the business part of it. Then go go the traditional route. Make that into your goal. Try to do whatever you can to get a uh, an agent, and how hopefully that agent will be able to sell your your manuscript to a publisher and go that direction. Business is not for everybody, but it's it's not. It doesn't make sense to say that you know I want to you know I want to make a substantial profit from, from writing, but I don't want to do the business part of it. You know that's like saying I want to be able to have the freedom of driving. I just don't want to get my license. Well, you can't have you can't have it both ways. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's so true. But I, I guess from the artist perspective, they say is like every time I'm working on marketing my book, or every time I'm not marketing, every time I'm working on sale, selling my book, that's less time I have to write, which is the uh, which is why they probably got into it. You know, I think I think most authors perhaps don't get into writing to you know look at analytics uh, on sales right. and stuff, right? Um, so again, is there any other advice you say to that specifically, or just again, kind of, it's kind of what your answer was before. Know why you get into it, right? You get, you got, you're right, exactly. And a lot of authors go into it because they, for whatever reason, they have a um, a story they want to tell, and they feel like that story is is vitally important, and the rest of the world wants you know, is going to need to read it. Um, you know, but again, if you are going, if you want the rest of the world to read it, you're going to also have to get into the marketing and the sales of it. Uh, no one's going to read it just because you you write something. You need to actually promote it. You know, I, I do see a lot of authors who, who will hang their hat on the fact they've written 10, 12, 20 books, although no one's ever read any of them because they don't do any of the marketing around yeah. it, yeah. Uh, which, you know, is is if you just want to go through the exercise of writing, then then great, then that's fine. But, you know, you can't do that and then be surprised that, that you're not making any money from it because you haven't done any of the sales. You have to learn that you have to learn that to, to love the sales aspect of it or give up on that particular dream. When I got into marketing, I got into marketing years ago because I love marketing. I love creating new ideas. I loved, you know, the idea of, of taking a product and figuring out how to sell it and how to how to brand something. I didn't realize that the creative part of it was maybe 10% of my job and the rest of the other 90% of my job was running a business and working with numbers. Um, and I didn't love numbers back then. I had to learn to love numbers. I had to learn to love the business side of it because the creative aspect, it was a very small percentage. A lot of my the designers that I would hire quickly realized that they got into the into the advertising design in order to do creative stuff, but the creative aspect of it, it was only 10, 15% of their job. The rest of it was editing and production, which kind of, it kind of sucks. It's not, it's not always a lot of fun. You have to learn how to love that part of it also. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I go back to, you know, I hear people talking and I go back to my own thoughts about college. You know, I, I was gonna, I was an economics major and I had to take science classes and math classes and other classes that, I, that really didn't apply to economics, right? Music classes. and. You know, I, I would think to myself, you know, why am I taking music class? I'm, I'm, I've already declared myself as a an economics major. Why am I taking a a, a, a class in in astronomy, uh, or in you know in music and whatever else? And I hear a lot of kids in college also complaining about the same thing about all of these you know requirements they have to take that are outside of their major. And now I understand it. Now, now the the answer is is because college is preparing you for what the reality of your career is going to be. Your, your career, whatever your chosen career is, is going to be about 10, 15 percent of the things that you actually like and 85% of things that just kind of go along with it, but that you don't enjoy so much. Yeah. You have to do the things you don't enjoy. You, you don't, no one gets to do just the stuff they love. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. And in, in any medium or any business that whatsoever, the more well-rounded you are, the more successful you'll potentially be able to be. But uh, you know, that, I'm just out of curiosity. Are you a member of the society of children's books, writers and illustrators? I'm not. Uh, you know, when I first started writing books, I was, you know, I was asking a lot of questions and I was doing a lot of research. And, you know, I, I found that uh, a lot of people were telling me that, you know, that's really where you have to start. You've got to start with, with a, you know, with being part of SCBWI. And so I joined and I paid my $120 in, in dues for the year. And I went to a couple of meetings and a couple of seminars. And 
I really didn't get it. I didn't understand. I didn't see what the value was. Um, the seminars I went to didn't really teach me so much as just seemed to be a platform for whatever author was there to promote her, his or her own books. Um, the meetups were with other people typically who also didn't, hadn't had any success yet with, with, with publishing. So, you know, I didn't really get any value out of it. So I, I haven't joined in like the last two years or so. Not to say there's not a value for it. Just, I think there's enough value in it if you want to put the effort into it. I, I, I just didn't. I didn't see any value for me. I think it kind of goes back to your, what you said before, but applying it to this about uh, like why, why you would go and, and what you would get out of it. Like for me personally, I am a member and I've gone to the conferences and I really do enjoy them. And, and even though I do learn a lot while I'm there, I think a reason that I really enjoy going to the conferences is to kind of help keep myself accountable to keep, keep writing and, and, and meeting authors and just learning different techniques. But one thing I do know about going to them, and uh, this is definitely a generalization and just kind of what I saw in, in some of the people that I talked to. It's not a representation of the organization uh by any means, but I've noticed that some authors I've met there, there's kind of a stigma about uh, self-published authors uh, or, or about the, the process of self-publishing, I should say, to the point is they, they also recommend people generally, uh, some other authors, that uh, it's better to not self-publish if you ever plan to be traditionally published because that is a, a knock against you. They're going to be less interested uh, for that reason. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I, I don't really know if that's necessarily true. I don't, I don't, I'm not in the minds of the uh, of traditional publishers, and I don't know if they would see it that way. Um, so I really can't speak to that. I know that um, a lot of people. I know that that a lot of people who are not um, who are not indie publishers um, believe that indie publishing is only for people who don't have the opportunity to get a traditionally published contract. Um, you know, if you know, you think of traditionally published contracts as you know the cream of the crop, and those are the best of the best. And everyone else who can't get that, well, they publish their books in some other way. And, and in some ways, they're correct. I mean, 90% of the books that I look at uh, that people send to me are, are, are trash. I mean, they're not, they're not very good. This is unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, it's, it's an industry with virtually no barriers to entry. Somebody has an idea for a book, and all they need to do is, is jot down a story on a piece of paper, and suddenly they are, they are an author. As opposed to, let's say, that I wake up tomorrow and I've got an idea for you know, an internet-connected toaster. Well, you know, it might be a great idea, but I'm not going to be I'm not going to start that business tomorrow. I need to first, you know, create some some, you know, some plans and some get the electricity part of it figured out and the, the engineering. And I got to find someone to manufacture it. I need to raise the money for all that. I can't just jump into that, the, the, the toaster manufacturing industry. Book writing, you can. Anybody can write a book. And so because anybody can, anybody does. And therefore, you see a, a large percentage of the books that come out not really being ready for prime time. So I, I understand why people think that, you know, Indie publishers are less than, but the there are indie publishers who I think really do rise to the top. They do have the the talent uh, and the ability to be traditionally published. They choose not to because they also recognize the business side of it is if I if I do it on my own, I could be you know I can make a lot more money. You know now I, I've had businesses before that were not publishing businesses that I've sold to other companies. You know my 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 you know before I did this I had a. Um, you know, a website that was, that we got 10, 12 million people per month. And I sold that off to another company. Um, the same way here, my, my publishing company, which now has five books published underneath it, um, three more coming out this year, three more coming out next year and continuing to grow at some point. Is it, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really looking for a buyer, but is it um, likely that someone, you know, a large traditional publisher will come to me and say, we'd like to buy your, your publishing company. Yeah, that would probably, that would probably happen. Um, whether or not I'd be interested in that, I, I don't know. But my, there is a good likelihood that as long as I continue to have success, someone will want to buy my catalog of, of books in my company. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Just to go back to, you know, about the, the self-publishing and, and the quality of it, I think that's another benefit that the traditional public publishing has is if you can get through you know you have more eyes in it so there is a little bit more quality control that being said because i've seen a lot of those uh frightening self-published books that you're kind of talking about and um what what is your process for that quality control to make sure that uh it's okay because i think one thing that a lot of authors do is they make this book and they they make excuses to themselves if someone gives them advice on it and say, hey, you might, this doesn't look right, or you might want to rephrase this, they say, oh, that person just doesn't get it. You know, like it, it, it's right in my head, which is also kind of the kiss of death because, you know, I mean, those are the same thoughts that someone buying it might think too, you know? Correct. Yeah. So, what is your process for uh, quality control in your books? Well, you know, I, I, 
I have a lot of books in my, you know, my, my, my daughter's library that I read to her on a regular basis. The books that I, I bought at Barnes and Noble and wherever else that, you know, and, and these, you know, because they are traditionally published, you can count on, you can count on Disney and Random House and Scholastic and all them to, you know, promote and, and print, you know, really high quality books. You know, if that is the top level, I don't want to put out a book that's going to be anything other than the same on the same level as those books. Because if I, if I am, what's, what's the point? If someone, if I'm going to have the same price tag, why would somebody buy my book as opposed to one of those books if it's not going to be in the, that same that same league? And that means the not only the writing, but the uh, the illustration, the quality of the production, you know, the printing, and the and and the paper quality, and the hardcover quality, and all that. So, you know, I make sure that I'm I'm working with the best of the best on in on all on all fronts. So I do have you know people that I trust that I give my manuscript to who can give me feedback and tell me you know what's good and what's not. And I sometimes I listen to them. Sometimes I say you know what, thank you, but I. Kind of don't really agree with what you're saying, and I'm going to continue doing what I want to do. Um, the same thing with with illustrations. You know, I I only work with um, with illustrators who are in demand. Uh, even if I have to wait a few months for them to get some time in their schedule to work on my books, I don't want to work with illustrators that are that are of poor quality. You know, and I, I see that very often. I see a lot of people will say to me, you know, I want to get my book out there. I don't have a big budget, so uh, do you know any illustrators that are willing to work on the cheap? And you know, the, the illustrators that they're looking at are just not professional illustrators, not illustrators that are ready for prime time. You know, and I know I, I hate when people say that art is subjective. You know, art is subjective to a, to a degree, but there are some there's some art that gets into a museum and some art that doesn't. There's yeah. some art that gets sold and some art that doesn't. Uh, and the art that doesn't doesn't for a reason, because it's not going to appeal to people in mass. And my, my response is don't publish just because you want to doesn't mean that you should. Yeah. Right? If you don't have the money for that right now, then save your pennies. Um, for the next year or two, do a Kickstarter campaign. Learn how to get a couple of, of small investors. You can raise ten, twenty thousand dollars relatively easily um, with you know if you if you focus on that and use that money to get a good illustrator, someone who's really high quality. Use that money to print up your your books with a an offset printer that is reliable, that has a, a history and a background of, of success, that can do your your books on really high quality paper that's going to bind it the right way. Um, you need to be, if you want to, if you want to actually be thought of in that, that realm, you need to produce books that are, are, are of that quality. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so important. And especially cause, uh, cause I see that I see a lot of people just looking for a cheap, uh, illustrator and, and like you're saying, but the thing is about it, like, uh, if you look at the book, the writer gets a lot of credit, but to the kid's eyes, I mean, like the, 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 the illustrations are what drive the story and not only do they drive the story, but they, they support each other so much that like, again, it's really something you don't want to skip out on. And, and like you said uh, yourself, yeah, it is subjective, but there is still a quality control within that and basics as far as composition on a page, which actually brings me to another really quick question. Just to get back to your, your books too, is I noticed uh, the graphic design layout. So aside from the illustrations, just the way that you lay out text and specifically with uh, Ricky the Rock, and it looks like you have some similar techniques here in um, in, in uh, Tessa the Tin. Uh, the way that you have uh, the bigger lettering and the way it's laid out, how, is that something that you decide, or is it back and forth with you and the illustrator, or do you have another whole person do that? No, actually, so I have the illustrator do all the um, the interior work for the illustrations, but I, I typically like to do my own um, typography. I'm not really sure why. Uh, I just I just end up I just kind of enjoy it. I have an idea of the way I want the the fonts to to, to look. So I, I make sure the illustrator gives me some some space to put the put the typography. I don't ever like to put copy over an image and just have like you know a, a faded out part of that image. I always think that kind of looks a little chintzy. So they always make sure they leave me some some blank space. But you know I like to have. I, I think that the 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 text should be a part of the story. Uh, I think you need to find a font that's easy to read, but still is a little bit of fun. Um, it has a little bit of a personality. You know depending on the kind of book you can really kind of weave that into the the overall artwork you know one of the books that um, that i have that's that's you know my favorite of, of the ones that i've written is the bear and the fern now that's a quieter story it's a little bit of a sadder kind of a story and so i didn't need to do yeah that one thank you uh i didn't need to do a lot with the, the, the topography on the inside i needed it to be more of a quiet sort of a font more of a serious font with ricky that's more of a boisterous fun um exciting sort of a story so I have, you know, where you mentioned that, you know, the the you know the copy is, you know, different sizes than whatever else. I have one font for the the narrative, and I have a different font altogether for the dialogue. And that font changes in size to indicate how loud someone's speaking. So I'm able to kind of adjust the volume 
of the characters based on the size of the of, of the font. Um, and I think that really has helped to you know make that story kind of like beloved by a lot of people because it's it's it has taken the the, the copy and interwoven it into the illustrations. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. First of all, I think it does have that effect. So just just to backtrack on what you were saying, so you have your illustrator do the full illustrations, and then you fit in the typography around. You said they they leave you space, but you don't have it necessarily pre-planned exactly where you're going to put it. Correct. And a lot of times, I'll have to go back to the illustrator and say, "Hey, listen, I've got a little more copy in this page than you might have realized. I need I need some more space." And they'll go back in and they'll they'll adjust things and give me yeah. you know, more space. Wow, that's really worked out well for you because I really like the way the typography is laid out, uh, particularly in in, uh, in in this series, the Rocky, uh, the Rocks series. Yeah, what is this, that whole series? Oh, the You Rock Group. You Rock Group series is cool. Yeah, that's really great. You know, another thing I just want to get into a little bit too is your um your process that uh well actually your uh, the new page press. So I'm sure that came up. Uh, as a matter of necessity, because you maybe couldn't find the right type of uh, self-publishing venue that uh, worked for you. So that's why you created your own. Because one thing I'll say too is that these are really high. When I ordered this, I was a little, not not uh, to, to take this the wrong way, but I was surprised at how really nice this paper is and everything. I mean, this is really, really nice. So how much of that was exploring and testing and what was that process like in order to, to create a quality book too? Well, you know, I think there's a, um, a fallacy in thinking that you need to have a, a self-publishing venue. You know, and I think a lot of people look for that and what they end up, you know, when they start going down that, that road, they end up with a vanity press, uh, something like a mascot publishing or a Zillibris or something like that, which, you know, these are companies that say that they are publishing your book, but really what they are, they're, they're publishing services. Uh, they're not actually publishing your book uh, in the way a traditional publisher would, and they are charging you a lot for it. And ultimately, it's very, very hard to get your uh, your money back in you know with those those sort of places. So you know, when I kind of realized that, and I realized that fairly quickly, um, and I, I saw that like you know, an Ingram Spark um, is not going to be able to publish my book for you know print my book for anywhere near the the cost that I would need in order to make some money. Uh, you know, you start recognizing that uh, you start looking through the industry a little more honestly and you're, you know, you look at it with, with an open mind and you realize, you know what, um, printing is done in China. That's where, you know, that, that's where good publishing is done. And, you know, I, I did some research to really vet out the, the public, you know, the printing that I want to do. And I realized that, you know, if I'm going to be a publishing company, I don't want to be published by a, I don't want to leave a, a scholastic to go with a mascot, which is basically just going to be taking my money under the guise of publishing it and then not really publishing it. Uh, I have to become my own publishing company, and I've always been an entrepreneur. Uh, you know, I mentioned before I had a, you know, I have a marketing company, I had a, um, a media company, so I've never been afraid to open up an LLC. So I opened up an LLC called New Page Press. Um, Page being P A I G E, and that's, that's my my daughter's middle name. Um, so that, that's kind of where where that came from. And oh, there you go, thank you. Um, and I just that's my that's my publishing company. And right now, my publishing company only publishes books that I, I write. One day. Uh, I will hopefully be publishing books that other people write. Why don't, could I do that right now? I, I technically could, but it wouldn't really be fair to authors because I, I don't have the distribution right now outside of Amazon. I do have you know some books in Target. I've got some books that are, you know, Barnes Noble is starting to test my books in some of their better stores. But until I know that I have a very easy distribution system, I don't think it's right to take on other authors. So yeah. maybe one day in the future I will. See, I must have uh, been confused. I, I thought you did... Uh do it for other authors, but uh, you do offer some sort of service in printing books for other authors, don't you? Or Correct. So okay. not, through my, not through my publishing company, but my publishing company is only for my books. I have another company called the IAPC, the Independent Authors Publishing Collective. And that company, with, with the, the success of Ricky and my other books, I've had a lot of other authors come to me and they, they've asked me, how do I, how do I kind of replicate the, that kind of success? Because I'm not doing anything that's magical. I'm not doing anything that anyone else can do, as long as you follow the right path. But, you know, you start to tell someone about printing in China and suddenly, you know, you can see their their eyes kind of glaze over and it scares them. It scares them that to, to, to print with a, a printing company that A, doesn't really speak English as their first language, that B, is going to be speaking to you about printing on an expert level. They don't want to they don't want to teach you about printing. They want you to, to already know it. Uh, that C is working when you're sleeping and vice versa. And then on top of that, have to do with the, 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 you know, the complexities of international shipping. Um, and a lot of them will say, you know what, I, I can't deal with all that. I'm just going to print off of an Ingram Spark or I'll print with a U.S. printer or I'll print through through Amazon KDP. And that's not the right avenue for building a business. So I recognized 
okay, you know what? The best way to help everyone out is if I just kind of acted as an intermediary. So, you know, there's other companies that do that, Print Ninja, for example. But I, you know, I looked at their prices and I realized their markups are typically so high. They don't, we don't need to, to charge that much. We can charge a very little bit on top of the printer, um, pass most of the profit back onto the author and let them, you know, make as much of a profit as physically possible without having to actually work through the printer themselves. So we worked with probably 40, 50 authors by now. We've probably printed four, 500,000 books uh, over the last year and a half. Um, you know, we're working with 11 different authors right now at this, at this moment, which is probably the num highest number we've ever worked with at one time. Um, you know, and I think it's, it's typically gone really, really well. Uh, we, we handle the printing and we handle the shipping. What's the name of that website again? Uh, it's, it's the, the company is called IAPC and it's IAPCbooks.com. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, people definitely check that out. I didn't put that in the show notes. Uh, I, I didn't notice that one right away. So I'll make sure I put that in the show notes for people to find after. Because that's a awesome uh, uh, resource that you've created for people. Because, yeah, as soon as you started saying those things, my eyes started glazing over too. That's very intimidating. Again, it's kind of harks back to what I was saying earlier about, uh, again, that's not why they got into writing. That's not why they enjoy writing to be doing those types of deals. So that's awesome that you make that available for people. Wow, that's really great. And so on your website for that, is there different uh, packages for people based on the amount of books and the size and whatnot? No, not so much packages. There's actually an online calculator. Uh, so you can go into the um, the website and you can just put in you know what whether it's hardcover or softcover. Uh, do you want um, you know, how many pages, color, black and white, dust cover, yes or no? There's a whole bunch of different variables. You put in all the variables that you want, the quantity that you're looking for, and it, it spits out a price to you for printing and for shipping. And the shipping is for back to our warehouse. We also will do the warehousing for you if you want that sort of thing. So, you know, we've got a warehouse in Kearney, New Jersey. So you don't want 3,000 books sitting in your, your room, in your basement, whatever. We'll take care of them. Warehousing fees aren't really very high, um, even if it's just 1,000 books. A lot of people will just keep the books themselves. But we typically tell them, you know, the warehousing costs are not what's really going to put you over the top uh, in terms of not being able to afford anything. And if you're going to keep your books in your basement and they're going to be there for a while where it's going to be humid or damp or whatever else, that's going to possibly harm your the pages of your book. I mean, this is paper. This is, you know, this is not solid material. Paper is going to not do well in you know different temperatures. So, you know, the warehouse that we have is <clears throat> very temperature controlled. It's humidity controlled. You know, let us hold on to it for you. We'll do the distribution for you as you get orders. You know, but it's, it's there as a service, um, you know, if, if people want it. So what is that process like for getting the books to Amazon? Because I know I, I know you're not exclusive through Amazon, but it seems like that's a big place where you do. Well, I mean, that's where almost everything is sold now. But it seems like a, a really big vendor for you. So Amazon is a big vendor for us. And right now, we, you know, I, I also my books are being distributed through a company called APG, which is a company that also distributes for uh, Compendium, which you know it has some you know New York Times bestselling books and a bunch of others as well. And, you know, they're, they're responsible for taking my books and getting them out into, you know, meeting the buyers of Barnes & Noble and Target and Costco and all that. And they're trying to make those inroads. So Amazon is, used to be kind of like my entire universe. And now I've, I've pulled back a bit and I'm recognizing for Amazon for what it is. It is a major part of the solar system, uh, but not the entire universe. And in that same solar system, while it might, it might, be, it might be Jupiter, but there's other planets in that solar system as well that are, that are also important. So, you know, Amazon is, is something I pay attention to, but I pay attention to a lot of other things now. Uh, but that took a while. But in order, to, in order to get there, in order to get a distributor who does those sales, I need to have a history of sales first, which is why my focus was on Amazon for a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's a good barrier to entry uh, for getting sales. <clears throat> as well as, like you said, it probably is the Jupiter of the solar system of selling books. Yeah, I love that. Uh, but what about actually like... Because, like you said, let's say you ordered 3,000 books. You can't send Amazon 3,000 books to sell out. You don't ship them individually uh, either, right? The book? No, so I mean, you know, Amazon is – they've got different platforms. When I first started with Amazon, um, they had a platform called Amazon Advantage, which is strictly for content creators. Now, over the last year, Amazon Advantage has been closed down to new people who are uh, – who are want to, you know, join it. However um, – I've been hearing rumblings lately that people have been actually able to get onto Amazon, people, Amazon Advantage. And it's a great platform uh, for people who can get on. Now, as I'm hearing that more people are starting to get on it again, I'm hopeful that it will open up for new authors again. Uh, if you can't get on there, there are other platforms such as Amazon Seller Central, where you are basically running your own little store on Amazon. And yeah, at that point, you might be having to send them, send them out to individuals yourself or use what's called FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon. But there's a lot of different ways to use Amazon. But Amazon, I think, is only in retail is only one um, fork in you know in in a, a three pronged road. 
if you are, if you order 3000 books, again, this is assuming that coronavirus lockdowns are not going to be a thing forever. Um, you know, you also want to be looking at, at street fairs, um, you know, where you can sell your books for 15, 16 bucks, uh, even though you're, you're printing them for, you know, a few dollars. You want to be looking at, at street, at, at, at school visits, you know, school visits can be in, in, insanely um, lucrative. You know, you're looking at, um, you know, pre-sales of books at the full cover price, uh, plus money for just appearing at the school. And come September, you know, we might not be able to go back and do, you know, because of the virus, we, not, we not, might not be able to go back and do live visits yet, but you'll be able to do Zoom visits to entire classrooms. And at that point, you know, we'll be able to, to charge for them again. So that actually can be a very lucrative way of doing it. You know, you order 3,000 books, you don't have to only think about retail, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever else. There's other venues as well. Yeah. You know, when, uh, in, in looking through your uh, your postings and stuff, I noticed this image here uh, where it says Amazon is out of stock, but but uh, there's still other opportunities to buy it. Now, what, how does that happen when uh, Amazon runs out? Can it run out suddenly? Like, how close do you have to watch Amazon and make sure you're able to fulfill orders? Well, that was actually my fault. I'm, one of the uh, areas where I'm not necessarily always good with my own books is uh, inventory management. So, you know, as you get close, that was probably done during the holidays. And as you get closer to the holidays, Amazon lets you know that, you know, if, you, if you're going to send them books closer to December, they're most likely going to be sitting on a loading dock somewhere for two weeks before they're put into the system uh, because they just have such a big influx of, of gifts and things coming in um, to put into their inventory that if you send it to them too late, it's, it's not going to make it into their inventory in time. So that was my, my fault. Uh, I probably should have seen... Um, that I didn't have a lot of inventory at Amazon at the time, and I should have sent them books earlier. I didn't. So once I realized that, that was going to, to happen, I, I kind of shifted gears and I said, okay, Amazon has them. They just haven't put them in their system yet. Until that happens, let me at least try to sell some of these books off of my own website. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, another thing, I, a couple other ones I, I saw here that just made me uh, have questions here was this one uh, about having books on sale and also that you occasionally do like free digital downloads. What's your thinking behind making those types of choices? So I, I don't love um, I don't love KDP, which is, uh, you know, Kindle Direct Publishing, you know, ebooks and, and paperback versions through uh, through Amazon uh, as, as a general rule. However, one of the nice things about doing an ebook through Amazon is that Amazon will allow you to create an ebook and give it away for five days, up to five days, uh, for free. And the idea there being that you give away your book for free for a few days, and the hope is that if people like it, they're going to leave you some positive reviews. It's an easy way to get early reviews for your books because the, the more reviews you get, uh, the a the, the greater likelihood is that people will see those reviews and buy books based off of the good ones. And b, as you get more reviews, Amazon gives you more visibility. So. You know, I typically will put my book up as an e as an e version um, to get some early reviews using those five days, and then once those five days are, are used up, I unpublish my book because I really don't want to have ebook versions, uh, you know, out there. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that makes uh, that's that's really interesting. Hmm. So you use it as a tactic to help drive. Uh, more reviews. and more views. Okay, so uh, go tying into that a little bit. Like, how do you use social media? How does that fit into you as an author and even as a publisher? Um, you know, I don't probably use it as, as much as I probably should. Like, I'm, I'm not a I'm, I'm not as into Instagram as I probably should be. Instagram, I think, is an amazing resource. That for whatever reason, maybe it's my age. I just haven't really gone into it yet. Um, I am probably sure that TikTok is going to be a large uh, platform for people. I, I, again, I, I can't get into it again. Maybe it's my age and my inability or unwillingness to, you know, adapt to things like that. Um, I do use Facebook quite a bit. I mean, my, I have a, a group on Facebook for for authors. Uh, that's 24,000 people, somewhere around there. Uh, I'm very active. There you go, twenty-three thousand people. I'm very active on my own page, um, on 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 Facebook. Uh, I'm starting to do a lot more with email blasts. I've got five, 6,000 teachers, if not more, on, in an email list. So, you know, I, I send, I'm starting to send them some things more regularly. But I, I think more at my, you know, I, I, I can't stand Twitter as a general rule, I'm, you know, for whatever reasons. Um, you know, I think, I think social media probably would be a, um, an important player for me. Um, and it is with the venues that I, I'm choosing to use. I just haven't really expanded or broadened my horizons beyond that. Although I, I do use a lot of pay-per-click advertising, particularly on Amazon. 
Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That group, again, just for people on audio, it's the Children's Book Authors and Illustrators Publishing, Marketing, and Selling. It's a private group on Facebook. And and Jay does a lot of uh, communication there and gives a lot of awesome advice. It will, it's not uncommon to see an hour-long live stream of him just giving all this amazing uh uh, advice to people who are self-publishing specifically uh, for their book. So definitely check that out. But uh, before we start to wrap up, uh, one thing I do want to point people to and give you an opportunity to talk about is I see that you uh, do a lot of webinars, which are is another resource for people to learn more about this process. Uh, do you mind talking a little bit about that and what those kind of look like? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I do I probably do like one or two a week and they're on a variety of different topics. Some of them are more popular than others. One of the more popular ones is just understanding the landscape. You know, I spend a lot of time when I made the switch over from working with the traditional publishers to do, deciding to do indie, indie publishing, uh, I did a lot of research. I, I, I didn't want to get into something without first knowing what I was getting into, what this industry is really like, how it actually really works, um, you know, and a lot of people don't really want to do that kind of research. I mean, I spent months reading through, you know, current and back issues of, of Publishers Weekly and Nielsen reports and whatever I can get my hands on, really. Um, and not, you know, I think a lot of people, for a lot of people, their research comes down to going into a Facebook group and saying, how do I publish my book? Uh, and then you're going to be getting a lot of comments from people who really have no idea how to publish their book. So I decided to start doing webinars as a way to kind of wrap it all up and say, okay, here's going to be a webinar on understanding the publishing landscape. Here's a webinar on how to understand how Amazon works. Here's one on how to, how to write and rhyme and understand how to get proper meter, things like that. So, you know, once, maybe like once, twice a week, I'll do different webinars. And I try to keep the price low. Usually it's, it's 15, $20. And for that 20 bucks, you're getting, you know, months worth, uh, worth of, of education crammed into an hour. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen my, my webinars go from an hour to two hours as people have a ton of questions. You know, I've got no reason to cut it short. I'll sit around for however long answering as many questions as people have. That's awesome. So just, just to get a little more specific in that, what does a, a webinar kind of look like? So, like it, you know, when people, it's, it's typically done on Zoom. And, you know, I have a, uh, I have a, um, a PowerPoint presentation that I, I sort of lightly follow, although I, I tend to kind of go off on tangents and wax poetic about things that uh, I, I feel passionate about. Uh, I get through, you know, the topics and I'm not, I'm not one. I, I also, I teach some classes at, uh, at Pratt Institute. And, you know, one of the very first things that I tell the students there is, you know, I don't teach generalities. You know, I don't want anything to be vague. Um, I teach very kind of hands-on, here's what you should, here's, the, here's what you need to know and here's how to do things. I don't want anyone to leave my class or one of my webinars saying that was great. I just don't know what to do next. Uh, I don't know what to do first. I, I want people to walk out saying I've got so many ideas. I I, I want to get them all started now. Like like I they, they I want them to be able to get their hands dirty immediately and be able to take what I'm doing and apply it to actually creating a real business. All my all of my my teachings are all about how to create a business from publishing. Because again, if, if I could do this. You know, and this is my full-time job now. I'm, you know, writing and publishing and marketing my books. This is my full-time job. If I could do this, really anybody can, as long as you take the time to understand what it is you're getting into and do it the right way. Yeah, no, that's that's really awesome. Yeah, and, and you said those are about once a week. Yeah, I see them posted all the time. That's such a great opportunity for people to to have. Um, now, how many people do you typically have in that? Is there a lot of one-on-one -on -one time that people have in it? So I, you know, I, I make as much time as people want toward, towards the end. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are not necessarily from the U.S., so they always they can't always make it for the, the time that I'm doing it. You know, I typically do them at nine o'clock at night Eastern time, which means that people in California at six o'clock they might be having dinner with their kids. But I, I typically see for a popular topic, um, I'll see between fifty and seventy people who are who, you know who sign up, um, and maybe twenty to thirty of them will actually be there live. The rest of them will just look for a um, a link to the replay afterwards. But I have um, you know anybody who signs up. They get to watch it live. I send everyone a replay link so they can watch it again later on if they, or, or for the first time uh, within 48 hours. Or if people don't really want to spend the 20 bucks, um, a month later, a month after I do it, I put up my Patreon page. Um, and on Patreon, it stays up there for, for a month. If it shows up a month later, you have to wait a little bit. Once it's up, then you have a month to watch it. Wow, that's really cool. I didn't realize you had the Patreon as well. What's uh, is there a website? I'll make sure to put that in the links below, but do you mind just telling us what that's called so people can search it? Uh, yeah, so it's actually patreon.com forward slash Mr. J author. 
Oh, perfect. Yeah. And speaking of which, I just wanted to, as we're wrapping up here, I wanted to bring up your website, which is meetmrj.com. And there people can find, it's a good way for people to connect with you, whether they want uh, uh, virtual school visits or yep. in-person ones once that opens up. And I'm sure there's uh, a good way to get connected with you for pretty much any of these things that we've talked about. Um, is there, is there, oh, actually, no, one mini question I have for you too. Cause I noticed in your books, uh, it's, it's not, uh, your full name. You go by just Mr. J rather than your first and last name on your books. What was your thinking behind that? Well, the, the first, the first print runs all had my full name, Jay Maletsky on them. Mm. Uh, and then I would go to these school visits and I, I kind of found out pretty quickly, not that I, not that this is, this is the first time it's happened. This has happened my entire life. Nobody can really pronounce my last name. Um, I mean, my name is Maletsky, but I've heard everything from Militeski to, to, I mean, you can't imagine how many different ways there are to butcher my last name. I can imagine my last name's Krutinger, but, but right. yeah. So you're, you're, you're with me on that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if a kid is going to go home, uh, and tell their parents, they want to, they want to buy, they, you know, they saw, you know, Jay Milanetsky, uh, they're not gonna be able to find me on, on Amazon anywhere. And, you know, these kids ended up calling me Mr. J anyway. I mean, I had even a lot of teachers who would, who would introduce me as Mr. J. And I started realizing if that's the way they're introducing me and that's what kids are calling me, why not just go by that? So I, I actually applied for a trademark. I have a trademark on the Mr. J name. Um, and I'm just starting to go by that. And that will that will hopefully keep my name in, in kids' minds uh, a little bit longer. Wow, that's that's uh that's really that's really interesting because I think uh, it kind of goes back to something that you were mentioning uh, before about why you're getting into it, because that ties back into that kind way of mentioning ego whereas again i think a lot of people like seeing their name on the book and that book in the store which uh again just kind of ties into your motivation for all this and the message behind your books and that it's a, that it's a huge success for you and i think it's this is the beginning really even though you've come so far i think this is really the beginning and i think i'm really excited to see where this all goes and i'm sure the rest of the audience will too um for those of you who are uh, are watching with us uh jay's uh social media has been uh scrolling at the bottom there the whole time you can find him on instagram at mr j and make sure you check out his uh his patreon and his website and his website is uh www.meetmrj.com jay thank you again so much for coming on the show and uh everyone My pleasure. make sure you check out his work thanks guys thank you for having me this has been a lot of fun